0: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I once again welcome you all to the 20th series of the MEI Speaks. Uh, Today, uh, as I just mentioned, we have Professor Robert Friedman to speak on a topic which all of us have been closely following since the last few months, that is the U.S. elections and the Middle East. Uh, For many of us who are studying and researching on the geopolitics of the region that is Middle East, Professor Friedman needs to introduction, but still I would like to read out a few of his credentials. Uh, Professor Friedman is uh, Peggy Meyerhoff uh, Pearlstone Professor of Political Science Emeritus at Baltimore Hebrew University and he is currently visiting Professor of Political Science at Johns Hopkins University where he teaches courses on the Middle East and on Russian foreign policy. Uh, Professor Friedman holds a BA degree in Diplomatic History from the University of Pennsylvania and MA and PhD degrees in International Relations from Columbia University. He has been an assistant professor of Russian history at the United States Military Academy, associate professor of political science and Russian at Market University. Uh, Professor Friedman has been a commentator uh, several times on major media outlets, has consulted often with the U.S. and uh, Israeli government agencies, and has served on U.S. government delegations, including the ones to Moscow and Uzbekistan. Professor has authored uh, about five books on Soviet and Russian foreign policy, and has been an editor of about 15 books on the Soviet Union, Russia, Israel, and the Middle East. Sir, exactly about two weeks ago, we had uh, Professor Ephraim Barr talking on a very similar subject, that is Israel and the upcoming elections. So given the developments, uh, as Professor Kumar just mentioned just now, uh, today's talk will also throw for the lights on the likely trajectory of relations between the US and Middle Eastern countries, particularly after this just concluded elections. And Professor, I would also like to mention that I was first introduced to your uh, scholarly works by Professor Ephraim way back in December, 2010, while I was serving as a fellow at the Besa Center in Ramad Gan, And it was uh, your edited book, uh, Contemporary Israel, published in 2008. Professor Inbar asked me to read and review. So personally, for me, it is a great pleasure to welcome you to our institute today and to moderate this session. So with these few words, I now hand over the floor to Professor uh, Friedman, and we look forward to your uh, dispensation, sir. Thank you, sir.
1: Okay. Uh, Well, thank you very much. I'd like to give a quick overview, if I may, of what I consider to be the main issues under Biden, and then open it up for questions from what people might have. All right, some general principles of Mr. Biden's foreign policy. One, human rights, which was non-existent in the Trump administration, uh, will be elevated, I think, considerably in the Biden administration. How high, we don't know, but at least you'll be able to see it. Number two, uh, Mr. Mr. Biden has many things on his table now dealing with the virus, which is getting worse in the United States, trying to repair the American economy. So I think it's no secret that he's going to be concentrating for a while on domestic policy rather than taking any major new initiatives, such as in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And three, the one thing I think which might shake up the Middle East to a certain extent, that I think he is going to do. And that is to move, to return to the JCPOA, which is a nuclear deal with Iran. Now, what he said is he wants to lengthen it and strengthen it, which means a longer time uh, for the uh, Iranians to get a nuclear weapons capacity, number one, and strengthen it uh, to include uh, missiles. Uh, to what degree he is going to be able to strengthen it further to cut Iranian aid, the Hezbollah, uh, is a very open question. But anyway, this is what he has said he wants to do. Now, if he goes ahead with this, it's going to shake up the Middle East in the following way. The Israelis aren't going to like it, the Saudis aren't going to like it, and the UAE isn't going to like it. So it's it is Iran which brought the three together, uh, and my guess is they're gonna number one come together further against Iran, and number two, if he's serious about pushing forward on this, go back and have more reinsurance with Russia, which is what they did under Obama, when Obama tried to treat the Saudis, the UAE, the Gulf Arabs uh, equally with the Iranians, both. Well, while they were very worried about uh, Iran seeking hegemony uh, in the Persian Gulf. Just very quickly going country by country. Uh, In the case of Israel, the warm, cuddly, cozy relationship that Netanyahu had with Trump is gone. Well, Netanyahu and uh, Biden know each other. uh, There have been clashes in the past Especially, some of you may remember, in 2010, when Biden came to visit Israel, all of a sudden, more housing on the West Bank was announced, which is a great embarrassment to Biden. And you have these kinds of irritations. Um, If I can give a small plug for uh, an article that I wrote, uh, as before I started writing for your journal, PR, this was in Israel Affairs, uh, in February of, of 2017, which is the erosion of U.S.-Israeli relations in the second Obama administration, where I go into great detail and exactly the kind of clashes, and of course, it was the, Biden, the Obama-Biden administration. So the personal relationship is gone. Number two, uh, Biden has already come out against Trump's plan this great plan, this deal of the century that gives Israel 30% of the West Bank and the Palestinians 70% of the West Bank and encourages Israeli annexation. That's over with. That's why the settlers, if you had a chance to pay attention to this, are pushing very strongly now to get as much settlement activity done, as much housing in the settlements, especially beyond the barrier wall, as they can before Biden comes in. So against annexation, annexation, uh, gonna take a stronger position against settlements. However, there's some things he's not gonna do. He's not gonna move the American embassy back from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv. And he's certainly supportive of uh, the Abraham Accords with uh, UAE and, and with Bahrain. And the deal that was made, although it was very much front-loaded on behalf of Sudan, uh, with Sudan. So you have that. Now, shifting over to the Palestinian end, uh, I think he's going to do a few things. He's probably going to reopen the PLO office in Washington. It was closed by Trump. Uh, I think he's going to either have a section of the American embassy uh, in Jerusalem, totally devoted to Palestinian affairs or more likely if he can manage it, uh, a separate building dealing with Palestinian affairs on the West Bank. So I think he's gonna reach out to the Palestinians and possibly restore some aid. Uh, Now Abbas from his end uh, thinks the Biden election is wonderful and this may give him the cover to resume negotiations with the United States. Uh, I think we have to watch and see, because on the one hand, he's working out some unity efforts with Hamas, although they haven't yet reached the point of elections which have been promised. On the other hand, he may want to see how far he can get with the United States under Biden. But I think the Biden election would give Abbas the cover he needs, uh, especially if the PLO offices reopen in Washington Uh, to get involved with the United States again. Uh, That would make a good bit of sense uh, for me. So, you know, that's, I think, one thing which will preoccupy uh, Biden. Now, moving on to Saudi Arabia, um, Trump sort of gave a carte blanche to uh, Mohammed bin Salman Uh, with the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, I don't think Biden will do that. But again, because American domestic politics are so tied into the virus and into rebuilding the economy, whether the U.S. wants to pick a major fight at this stage with Saudi Arabia, given the other areas of cooperation, uh, remains to be seen. Uh, with the UAE, I think relations will continue to be good. Um, and if I'm sure you all noticed the other day, the UAE uh, has uh, Islamic restrictions. Uh, so honor, honor killings now, you will get tried for and punished for, like any other murder. Um, uh, having access to alcohol is easier, cohabitation and so forth. So I think these, these were clear gestures uh, to the U.S. And I think the UAE uh, and its relationship to Israel, which is moving ahead very rapidly from a kosher restaurant in the big tower in Dubai on the one hand uh, to cooperation in, in agricultural technology on the other, flights back and forth. Uh, so that is going ahead very rapidly. So I, I think the the U.S. UAE relationship uh, will probably uh, stay pretty pretty strong. Egypt is another question. Uh, if you remember, Mr. Trump called General Sisi quote my favorite dictator, <laughs> um, and I. That certainly with the human rights issue, that's not going to be the 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 sense of of Biden, although it should be remembered that Obama, I think, made a horrendous mistake in dealing with General Sisi uh, during the coup in 2013. Remember, this was not simply a military coup. You had a million people on the streets in Egypt, uh, very dissatisfied with Mohammed Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, The U.S., because it was a coup, decided to cut military aid just at the time when Uh, the Egyptians were fighting against ISIS-identified forces in the Sinai. And of course, the Russians stepped in there and began a process of rebuilding relations in a a big way with Egypt, which continues to this day. So again, in the case of Egypt, I don't see, given all the other issues on Biden's plate, is really going to pick that much of a fight. Also, where Trump seemed to give a carte blanche for the Egyptians to bomb the Grand Renaissance Dam in in Ethiopia. Uh, I don't think you're going to have that kind of comment coming out of of, of Biden. So I think relations may cool a bit, but so long as the Israeli-Egyptian peace treaty holds, and Egypt now seems to be focusing more on the eastern Mediterranean, uh, cooperating with Greece and Israel uh, natural gas, in Cyprus, uh, I think that relationship will probably hold. Now, Turkey is a big question mark. Uh, U.S.-Turkish relations have been going downhill very rapidly over the last few years. The Turks claim that Tula Gulan, who lives in the United States, engineered the 2016 coup and are demanding its, its extradition even Trump wasn't willing to do that, uh, although Trump leaned over backwards in the Hall Bank issue, even though it was smuggling money to Iran, uh, Trump managed to get American prosecutors to sort of forget that. Uh, the SAM 400s, which the um, Turks got from Russia uh, and have now started exercising with Uh, This has got Congress all riled up, including Biden, by the way, Uh, and uh, Trump was opposed to sanctions on Turkey for that. Um, And the messing in the Eastern Mediterranean, uh, that's problematic. Uh, Although there now seems to be a holding ceasefire in Nagorno-Karabakh, Biden called out the Turks for exacerbating that conflict. Uh, I can see some deterioration of relations and a fairly rapid one, I'm not even talking about Syria here, and how after talking to Erdogan on the phone, Trump abruptly pulled American uh, troops and support out of Turkey, leaving our Kurdish allies in the lurch. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen under Biden. Uh, But I I see a deterioration of relations with the Turks uh, coming on now. uh, Erdogan is fairly hard-headed and we'll see how that goes, and he may move closer to the Russians, but the Russians, I think if you look, at least I'm waiting to see how this ceasefire plays out in Nagorno-Karabakh, as well as a ceasefire in Libya, but I think the Russians had pretty well backed the Turks into a corner, and if the Turks hadn't noticed it, when either the Syrians or the Russians bombed their training base In northern Syria, six miles from the border of Turkey, Uh, the Turks, I think, got the message. So I think uh, as relations between the U.S. and uh, Turkey go down, I think Russian-Turkish relations will probably improve, although the Turks will have to pay for that. And I think the ceasefire in Azerbaijan, and maybe if the ceasefire holds in Libya, which is an open question, uh, that's a second example. So, you know, looking around the Middle East, then Turkey, Iran, uh, Israel, Palestine, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, the UAE, uh, these are really the the central players in U.S. policy at the current time. And I see some nuanced changes, probably the biggest change in the case of Turkey, uh, lesser changes elsewhere although if the Iranian initiative ever gets off the ground, and the Iranians, as I think everybody knows, are demanding American concessions and lifting of sanctions before they'll talk again about the JCPOA. And I don't know if, if Biden is willing to do it because the one thing Trump has done is built up leverage for the United States in dealing with Iran. Uh, that all remains to be seen. So that's the overview. So let me open for questions. Uh, than anybody might have on any of these issues, or especially on issues that I didn't mention.
0: Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir, for taking us through the entire region uh, country-wise, and that in itself has opened up lots of uh, curiosity in all of us to continue the discussion of today. Uh, so, uh, when, we look in the, uh, when we look at the recent elections, uh, the thing that intrigued us from the prism of the Middle East and the U.S. Uh, relations was the silence by the Saudis right after the election results had come out. Uh, the prolonged, for about 24, for 24 hours, the Saudi leadership did not come out with any of the messages to the uh, Biden administration to be. So with this uh, with this cue, I would like to uh, request uh, Professor Joseph Kishen, uh, uh to you know to give his opinion or any questions to Professor Friedman, sir. Over to you, sir.
2: Thank you, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to add something to uh, uh, Bob Friedman's overall excellent uh, summary of uh, the changes that could happen, and I was struck by his emphasis that. Uh, that the Biden administration will have as a priority human rights issues. And in fact, I was toying with this idea as I was listening uh, to him speak, that although human rights obviously will be very high up on the Biden administration's agenda, there is also a lot of realism one has to take into account. Uh, I don't know whether or not this will be the case, but I think that the Biden administration's priorities will not be the Middle East. It will be the rest of the world. It will be Europe, uh, first and foremost. It will be Russia and China, uh, and perhaps as a fourth, as a fourth uh, item, uh, the Middle East. Even even though I'm willing to even downgrade that to fifth and sixth. But having said that, and I was struck by the fact that the Khashoggi assassination in Istanbul uh, continues to uh, um, to uh, preoccupy uh, American uh, officials to the degree that it is. It is an awful assassination, which has been now tried in a court of law and people have found have been found guilty. And, and it was a huge, huge error that was committed. But the question is, and I would like to really get Bob Friedman's views on this. The question is, well, how long do you think Bob is the Khashoggi murder will be the uh, Damodi sword over the head of the Saudis. Will it be one administration? Will it be two administrations? Will it be three administrations? Uh, This is not the first assassination that has occurred uh, in, in the world, and it will not be the last, unfortunately. We don't say anything about the thousands of journalists, political prisoners assassinated and killed in Turkey, for example. Uh, in, in, in instead, we talk about the geostrategic position of Turkey, which is, of course, very important, as you rightly said. But again, you know, why why do you think there is this huge preoccupation with the Khashoggi murder, putting aside all the other key elements in the relationship between Saudi Arabia and the United States?
1: Okay, Joseph, very good question. Uh, If I may, I would like to go a little bit deeper in my answer to you. Remember, we keep getting information dribbled out on a regular basis. And who does the dribbling? The Turks. And the Turks are keeping this issue alive because part of Erdogan's strategy is to challenge the Saudis for leadership of the Sunni world, Sunni Muslim world. And the longer they can keep this alive... Uh, the more the Saudis look bad. So you have to expect that the Turks will definitely keep this issue alive. Although you're absolutely right, if you look at the horrendous thing the Erdogan regime has done, jailing of, of Kurds, killing of Kurds, jailing of newspapermen who don't agree with the regime. You know, this is an ugly, it's an ugly regime, but in the game that Erdogan is playing, they, he wants to sort of restore, it's neo-Ottomanism. He wants to restore the Ottoman Empire as the great Sunni leader, uh, the Sunni Muslim leader. So I think you're going to have that on a regular basis, and they're going to try to keep it alive. And again, the human rights community in the United States, I think, picks up on this. And because the Trump administration totally downgraded human rights as an issue, except for the Uyghurs in China, because Trump wanted to hit China, uh uh, I think there'll be some resonance. Will it outlast the end of the Biden administration? Probably not. I think there'll be a lot of other things. Now, in terms of your other point, which is also one I agree with, uh, in terms of priorities, um, and thanks for giving me the chance to get into this, I think from foreign policy, number one is going to rebuild ties with NATO uh, because unnecessarily Trump hurt relations with NATO Personal attacks on Angela Merkel, personal attacks on Macron, personal attacks on Trudeau of Canada, for God's sakes, is America's number one and closest ally. I think that's gone. I think he's going to work very hard to rebuild relations. Um, In the case of Europe, they keep kicking around the idea, of course, that they're going to have a European army because they can't trust the United States to back them up but i think that idea I, th- I think will go down and i wouldn't at all be surprised if biden reverses the decision of pulling out those 12,000 troops from germany which trump wanted to do to penalize the germans for not paying enough to, for their own defense so i think rebuilding ties with nato it's a low hanging fruit to be sure doesn't require a lot of political capital because it's something Republicans, including Pence, by the way, vice president, has always been a big supporter of NATO, even if Trump is not. So I think that's going to be a a number one priority. In terms of Russia, I'm not sure. Uh, I think there'll be a gesture or two, such as for another five years, continuing the strategic arms agreement. It runs out in February and the Russians are willing to continue it for five years. I think Biden be willing to, to continue it for five years while negotiating on something else. Uh, What Trump wanted to do was bring the Chinese in and that the non-starter for the Chinese and also for the Russians. So I think sort of as is uh, extension for five years. And the Trump administration wanted a closer check on the kinds of nuclear, tactical nuclear weapons that the Russians have. I'm not sure Biden is going to push on that immediately, but have that for, for negotiations. So I think that, again, a low, relatively low-hanging fruit and relatively easy to do. In terms of China, uh, as we were discussing before our seminar began, um, I think he will be use more deft diplomacy than Trump did in, in trying to bind together an alignment in Asia with the United States against China and its activities in the South China Sea. Um, uh, the one thing Trump did do was build up Taiwan militarily and just another, you know, in the last few months, one arms deal after another arms deal after another arms deal, which will make it much more difficult for China to launch an attack uh, on Taiwan. Um, so I expect uh, that may be downplayed the Taiwan issue Maybe downplayed, basically, they're going to let these arms deals go through, but then sort of downplay a little bit so as not to unnecessarily irritate China. That, that again remains to be seen. I know the Taiwanese are a little bit concerned about that. Uh, I'm hoping that relations with India will continue to improve. Uh, with Japan, with South Korea, some of the irritations that Trump did unnecessarily, I think, will be removed, such as the unnecessary fighting over the trade issue and over financial support for American troops, because the North Korean issue still looms large. So I think if I had to list priorities, I would put number one, rebuilding ties with NATO, uh, and very close second to that, or perhaps equal, uh, rebuilding Uh, the alignment in Asia and eliminating some of these personal issues or personality issues that Trump did. Uh, So I think these would be number two. Uh, What they can do with China remains to be seen. Uh, What Biden has said, if you take him at his words, uh, cooperate where possible, but draw lines where red lines were necessary. Now, we all know the story about Obama and the red line over the use by the Syrians of chemical weapons, hopefully Biden's red line will be more, uh, more of a red line. So I think some of the nastiness and tone from the Trump administration toward China will go down, but I don't see a huge improvement of relations so long as Xi is in power, Xi Jinping is in power in China. So then after you've gotten all this stuff out of the way, then I think the Iran, the Iran thing. So maybe I would put it forth. So. But again, Joe, thank you. Very good point. Thank you, Professor. Uh,
0: so another country uh, that must be closely keeping a tap of the developments with regard to U.S. and the Middle East could be Japan. So in view of this, may I request uh, Professor Tanaka to raise some of his uh, observations or questions to Professor Friedman. Thank
3: you for the opportunity. And thank you, uh, Professor Friedman, for your excellent talk and clarifying the conditions that uh, President-elect Biden is going to face in the coming month. Now, um, you've listed the priorities uh, when uh, Biden is going to take uh, take office. And one thing that I think that you might have not mentioned or might have uh, slipped my mind or my ears was that the issue of the environment. Now, would Biden, uh, would the Biden administration take, uh, certainly he will take care more of the um, greenhouse gas emissions and all these stuffs more seriously. But how would that be placed in his uh, domestic and also uh, energy policy. The problem here is that if he's going to curtail the shale development inside the United States, which has been uh, flourishing and blooming for the past several years, then the uh, possibility of the United States having its uh, self dependency on fossil fuel and others is going to diminish, which in turn would bring the Middle Eastern uh, oil producers such as Saudi Arabia or even Iran to have sort of leverage or bargaining power against uh, in the foreign policy, uh, arena uh, against the United States, so if it's going to prioritize the uh, energy issue and also slash environment issue uh, in the United States that would eventually place the United States in a very vulnerable position uh, than uh, than they uh, they are today how would how would you see this equation
1: okay, another really good question um, there is some low hanging fruit that you can do immediately and then there's long Long range stuff. First of all, he can, by executive order, uh, get rid of a number of the executive actions that the Trump administration did, which is cut regulations on business, uh, cut regulations on coal mines, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So he can reimpose this stuff, which he's very likely to do. Uh, he's going to rejoin the Paris Agreement uh, on climate change. I guess that is also... Uh, something easy to do. But your point on hydraulic fracturing and shale is important. Now, I've looked at the shale issue. Now, you can cleanly do hydraulic fracturing. If you double cement your pipes as they go down past the water line, and when the stuff comes up, a mixture of chemicals and water and pebbles, etc., cetera, you get rid of the stuff that comes up with it cleanly. Now, what, Trump, what Biden has said is no fracking, no hydraulic fracturing on federal lands. He's not stopping it on private lands. Now, as a result of hydraulic fracturing, the United States moved from being five million barrel a day oil producer. And when Obama started to over 12 million barrels, at least before the COVID crisis came. So the US for a while was the number one producer of oil in the world hence less dependent on foreigners. And the main dependence the U.S. has is on Canada. The U.S. gets 3 million plus barrels a day of oil from Canada's, the main import source. But other than that, it's a net exporter. Um, I think this is going to be a slow process. Now, he's going to be prodded by the, the Green Movement within the Democratic Party. One of the big Biden challenges, remember, he ran as a moderate and won as a moderate. And he won the so-called rust states of Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania, the so-called rust belt states that were taken by Trump four years ago because he was a moderate. And while the Trump administration tried to convince everybody that he was a socialist, he was basically a moderate. So in order to govern, uh, he's going to have to keep the moderation, which will cause Increasing frustration by this another quad, a group of ultra progressives in the Democratic Party, Ilhan Omar, AOC, and others, and Bernie Sanders, who are going to be pushing for a more rapid uh, environmental change, so called Green Revolution. Um, I think he's going to moderate that. So I don't see And I don't see hydraulic fracturing stopping immediately. It'll continue on private lands. Uh, So I don't see, uh, and we have to wait for the COVID to stop and then more uh, demand to build up, of course. Uh, So I don't see the US going back on being highly dependent on the Middle East for oil again. Uh, um, I simply don't see that. So uh, we'll see. But again, good, good question.
3: Well, thank you, Professor. It's quite clear for me now. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you.
0: Uh, may I also request our, our our India's former ambassador to Iran, Sanjay Sir, to raise some of his views on the on the topic. Thank you. Sir.
4: Uh, thank you for so uh, eloquently listing down the priorities of the for the Biden administration. And I hear you that. Uh, uh, One, that the Middle East is not going to be very high on the list of priorities. But I also hear that uh, human rights and human security may be. In that context, there are some things that cannot wait which are possibly disasters in, in in the realm of human security and I am thinking about Yemen. Will the Biden administration take up Yemen and the humanitarian problem in Yemen and deal with this as an immediate problem?
1: All right, that's a very challenging question because in dealing with Yemen, of course, you're dealing with the Saudis who are a US ally on the one end and the uh, Iranians backing the Houthis on the other, and it's a very complex situation in Yemen. Um, I think that's not going to be high on the priority list of the Biden administration. Uh, we talk about low-hanging fruit. That's an extremely high-hanging fruit to, to try to get a solution to the Yemeni issue. Um, It may just have to uh, play itself out. The only possible change that might happen is if the Houthis continue to fire rockets into Saudi Arabia, possibly hitting some oil installations that the Iranians give them, then the U.S. might have to get more heavily involved. But barring that, I don't think it's a priority that the uh, Biden administrations want to get into because it requires a huge amount of capital, political capital, to do. And the payoff at the end is questionable, Uh, human rights notwithstanding, and people starving notwithstanding, and and so forth. Uh, This might be a case where the Europeans who keep looking for things to do uh, might get more usefully involved. Uh, And the U.S. might deputize the Europeans here uh, to try to do that but I don't see it as a high priority, unfortunately.
0: Thank you, Professor. Uh, Is there anybody uh, who would like to... Oh yeah, so we have a question. Yes, Mudasa, I'll come to you. Uh, We have a question from Dara Shah. Uh, Dara, if you just unmute yourself and ask Professor your question. Thanks, Um, Alvai. Professor Friedman, I just wanted to ask your views on how receptive are the states that uh, uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo will be visiting shortly. He's announced a, a seven-nation tour, beginning with Paris and then like the three allies in the Middle East. How receptive are these nations going to be to his visit? And what sort of outcomes can we really expect?
1: Well, um, I think it's, uh, there, there's a term in English in the United States, lame duck. And for those of you not familiar with it, it's somebody on the way out that has very little clout. So um, I think it's going to be an attempt to try to reassure these countries that even though Biden is going to come in, and of course, I'm sure you heard Pompeo yesterday saying, perhaps tongue in cheek, that it'll be a second Trump administration, although that's very hard to believe. Uh, I, I think it's a question of reassurance. In case of Israel, um, with the F-35 just going through to UAE, I think there's a question of the qualitative military edge which um, Trump has promised and Biden has promised, uh, the kind of compensation Israel' is going to get for that, possibly the, v- the, the 22 V22 uh, vertical takeoff, Uh, plane as as partial compensation remains to be seen. And I think they go to Saudis and they go to UAE and so forth. And they're just going to try to reassure them that things won't change all that much. Uh, I'm not sure how much attention is being paid, except in Israel, where they're going to want the arms um, uh, and how much clout Pompeo has with two months to go before he's out of office. Now, I, I don't want to minimize these last two months because remember, the last two months, the Obama Biden administration, the US abstained on the UN Security Council resolution condemning Israel on the settlements, uh, which caused a huge stir. So I'm not saying they can't do anything, uh, but I, I don't see a huge amount coming out of this other than arms deals and arms sales.
0: Thank you, Professor. Uh, May I request Mudasir to come up with his question?
5: Uh, Thank you, Professor. It was great to listen to you. Uh, And uh, I have two short questions. Uh, One is uh, the point which uh, Professor Kishishian actually mentioned during his question about the listening, and you were also mentioning during the presentation, that there would be less, you know, uh, kind of focus on the Middle East as far as US foreign policy is concerned so will that mean i mean if compared to the obama administration will that mean more involvement of russia in the middle east and you know you were also perhaps uh, indicating towards that during your presentation maybe you can uh, kind of elaborate on that and the second point was uh, you know we had a discussion uh, earlier you know in a, earlier week when professor ifraim embava was mm-hmm. here and one of the points uh, which came during the discussion was the uh, Netanyahu, uh, the Prime Minister Netanyahu, not meeting, you know, Biden, the Democratic candidate during the entire, you know, campaign period. Will that, how far that will affect, uh, you know, the relationship between Israel and the U.S. Or can one say that was that a mistake as far as the bipartisan, you know, relations? Is concerned. Thank you, sir.
1: Okay. Uh, very good. Thank you. Um, let me answer them in, in, uh, in order. Um, the Russians' entry into the Middle East was primarily made possible by acts of omission or commission by the United States. I've already mentioned what happened in Egypt, the misplaying of the coup by Sisi sort of invited them in. When the U.S. essentially cozied up to Iran, with the JCPOA agreement, and President Obama given the feeling that, well, we should treat the Saudis and the Iranians the same, that moved the Saudis closer to the Russians, and that was reinforced by the oil agreement member of 2016, moved the UAE closer, the UAE agreed to buy some weapons, etc., and certainly moved the Russia, the Israelis closer. Uh, Israel, you know, on a major UN resolution, if you might remember, condemning the Russians for the uh, invasion of Afghanistan, uh, of Crimea, abstained essentially. So there was a shift there to the Russians. Now, if the Biden administration once again closes up to Iran, and as I'm saying, it's going to be very difficult. And again, I see this, what I call the reinsurance effort of these countries to move closer to the Russians. Uh, but since I don't see a lot of success in that endeavor of closing up to Iran, in part because the Iranian elections are coming up, remember, in June, and it's going to be hard for any Iranians, either conservatives or the moderates, to make gestures to the U.S. and whether the U.S. can make some concessions Uh, There'll be a lot of opposition to that in the U.S. in lifting even partial sanctions. Uh, I don't see that happening. So I think the U.S. is is not going to leave the Middle East. In other words, the U.S. is going to maintain its bases in Qatar and Bahrain and its very close relationship with, with Israel and close relationship with Saudi Arabia and still working relationship with Egypt. Um, I don't see the U.S. giving that up. It's just that more emphasis will be placed uh, on rebuilding ties with NATO allies on the one hand, uh, you know, containing China in Asia, you know, on the other, and a more hard-headed policy uh, toward Russia. So I see where the emphasis will be different. I don't see the U.S. leaving. Uh, So the Russians, of course have the a lot of interest in the Middle East, uh, primarily Syria, but they're having their own problems in the Middle East. Uh, keeping control of or trying to control the Syrians, the, the Iranians uh, and the Turks in northern Syria is not an easy task. Uh, and they're trying to get a transitional council going, and the Assad regime doesn't want to go for it. Uh, so... And plus, they have lots of domestic problems. So I don't see huge Russian breakthroughs in the Middle East either. So that's, that's that. Now, in terms of your second question, that's the fascinating one, I think, because if Netanyahu made any mistake, and he made a number, but his biggest mistake as prime minister was shifting attitudes in the United States about Israel from being Bipartisan, which they really were through the end of the Bush administration, to being highly partisan. And you have now Republicans, 80% pro Israel, Democrats, at best 50%. And this is because of the constant clashes between Netanyahu and Obama. And then you have the close personal tie between Trump, who most Democrats at war. Uh, and Netanyahu, and that just exacerbated the, the problem of partisanship. So I think that is going to be an issue. Uh, now, Biden is a longtime friend of Israel. Um, so hopefully he can get over that. But I think a lot of Democrats won't.
5: Thank you, Professor.
0: Thank you, sir. Uh, may I also request Professor Ramakrishnan from the Center for West Asian Studies, uh, who's with us now. So if you are there, can you uh, unmute yourself?
5: And uh, I'll pass.
0: Uh, <laughs> I I'm keenly listening to. Okay, discussion. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, may I request uh, Doctor Moinuddin uh, uh, to unmute and pose a question to P- Professor Friedman? Yes. Yes. Please.
5: Yeah. Thank you, Professor Friedman, for this uh, lecture. Uh, my question is uh, only
0: regarding Israel, uh, sir. Uh, We have seen that, uh, you know, uh, Israel is not quite sure what to do with the settlements. And you had mentioned it uh, in the beginning as well. Now, with the coming of, uh, you know, Joe Biden as the president of the United States, what do you think uh, uh, the policy of Israel will be in terms of, uh, you know, the settlements in West Bank particularly? Thank you. Professor, before you go on to this question, uh, I can club with another question. We have a, a similar question raised by an audience, Kavita. If, Kavita, if you can unmute yourself and uh, raise the query to Professor. Yeah. Hello. Thanks for this opportunity. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I wanted to know uh, that what will be the Biden administration's take on Palestine issue given that Joe Biden has already commented that if he's elected, uh, U.S. will be leaving the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem. And as Dr. Friedman had just discussed, that uh, Israel had, you know, uh, Netanyahu had put all his eggs in the Republican basket. So what will be Joe Biden administration's take?
5: Thank you.
1: Okay, again, very good questions. Um, let me start with the settler issue. Um, in recent weeks, there's been a proliferation of settlement building or settlement authorization. You know, there's housing and settlements. Remember there are two places on the West Bank. There's within the barrier, uh, the anti-terror barrier, where 77% of the settlers live. Uh, and the scattered settlements near highly populated Palestinian cities and towns. Now, what the settlers are trying to do in the last two months of the Trump administration is get as many settlements in as possible before Biden comes in. And uh, I'm reminded of the story, which I saw when I was in Israel in 2009 uh, I went to a place called Mala Adumim, which is on the hilltop, overlooking uh, the road down to Jericho uh, and the Dead Sea. And you had Kadum there. And then right at the top of the hill, uh, not too far from Kadum, you had Mala Adumim, Kadoom. And there was just the beginnings of another settlement there. And I went up and I talked to the guard. And I asked, is this going to be another settlement? And this is 2009, and this was June. And what the guard told me was only if your president, meaning Obama, lets us do it. So every time I'm in Israel, I go back and I go and and visit and visit and visit. Of course, during the Trump administration, uh, when I was there, it was already a booming little village. So it's very clear that Biden will oppose it. Uh, Now, he won't cut security aid to Israel over that issue, although there will be a lot of pressure from the progressives within the Democratic Party uh, to do that. Um, But I think that will be an issue of friction. And to avoid the friction, I think the settlers are trying to get as much done now uh, until January 20th. Uh, But I think it will be as it was in the Obama administration a serious issue of friction uh, between the American administration under Biden and Netanyahu and his settler base. Now, in terms of the Palestinians, uh, again, uh, Abbas made I think a big, a big mistake when he totally cut off negotiations with the United States, um, because all that did was encourage Netanyahu to go further, which he did. Uh, I think with the new administration, especially if it opens the PLO office in, in Washington and sets up a uh, an office in Jerusalem to deal with the West Bank, the way it was under all administrations prior to Trump, uh, these would be some major gestures to the Palestinians, which will enable Abbas to come back in negotiations. Now, what Abbas has said is he wants an international conference with members of like another quad, of the diplomatic quad of the EU, Russia, uh, the UN, and the United States to work out a peace agreement. Uh, whether that will get off the ground remains to be seen. But again, I think you're going to have the contacts between the Biden administration and the Palestinians, something you haven't had in the Trump administration. Now, whether that will go, how much, how far that will go remains to be seen. Meanwhile, there's very slow efforts at some sort of reconciliation between Hamas and Palestinian Authority under Abbas. And supposedly there's going to have elections, although we haven't seen the rules on that yet. Um, So if there's a unified Palestinian front, that will clearly strengthen the Palestinian bargaining position. The problem is the Hamas people and Palestinian Authority people don't like each other very much. And you add to that the succession battle going on, Abbas is 85 and not healthy. And uh, I don't think you're gonna see a lot of progress on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict until there's a new Palestinian leadership, probably a new Israeli leadership and an American president who's willing and able to push it through. Right now you have Netanyahu who doesn't want an agreement Abbas boss who's too weak and too ill and too old to push through an agreement, and Biden who has too much on his plate right now uh, to devote a huge amount of personal presidential time to pushing through an agreement as opposed to solving the COVID problem, the economic problems in the United States. So I think that's where we are right now.
0: Thank you, sir. Uh, may I request uh, Kumar Swami, sir, to uh, intervene Thanks.
4: Thanks. And I know I couldn't uh, control the temptation of Professor Friedman. And uh, if I observe the relationship between uh, Netanyahu and uh, Obama, it was basically lack of personal warmth. Policy differences are much minor than the lack of warmth. And I think that complicated everything. Really. My question is, Given the Biden's approach of being inclusive, accommodative, you know, more uh, um, in terms of uh, uh, receptive to people, will that make the chemistry different between him and Netanyahu? Because that was a problem with Obama. Or are you seeing okay. this will be Obama 3.0? Um, oh,
1: you're, you know, you hit the nail on the head. If, if you look, at the picture of the first meeting of Obama on the one hand and Netanyahu on the other in May of 2009. Here's Obama sitting there with his arms crossed and here's Netanyahu sitting there with his arms crossed, both very tense. Personal chemistry was totally missing. That having been said, there were serious policy problems too. One, Obama made the decision that in order to move the peace process forward, he had to distance himself from Israel. So his first trip to the Middle East was Saudi Arabia and Egypt, and before that had been Turkey, but no Israel. So that didn't go very well. The other policy issue, and this was a big mistake that Obama made, was that in April of 2004, uh, Sharon and uh, then President George W. Bush Uh, had reached an agreement, the Israelis are going to pull out of Gaza. In return, the U.S. said that it realizes that in any final settlement, the realities on the ground, that is the settlement blocks, would would have to be taken in consideration as part of Israel. So when Obama called immediately for the stop of settlement construction or housing construction in the settlements anywhere, that sort of violated this agreement between uh, Sharon and, and George W. Bush. And that was a big policy difference. And even though Obama was told, and I know this from uh, J Street, which is a progressive pro-Israeli lobby group, uh, where they had a meeting with Obama and they urged him to go to Israel. Uh, and he didn't go until the beginning of the second term um, I think th- these are policy, these are policy differences, uh, personality, yes, personal chemistry, you're absolutely right. But there's some serious policy differences too. Now, in the case of Biden, I don't think you're going to have the uh, personality differences because Biden and Netanyahu know each other. It's not the new boy on the block, you know, meeting Netanyahu. It's these guys know each other, uh, But I think the policy differences will remain, especially over the settlements, and especially if there's an attempt by the US under Biden to go back into the JCPOA agreement.
0: Thank you, Professor. Uh, Sir, I would like to ask a question, but uh, I can see a similar question up on my screen from Professor Guy Burton. When we talk about the Middle East uh, and the US, uh, the third party factor, China, uh, has been very visible from the early 90s onwards. In fact, I wrote my thesis on this and where many of your works have helped me in formulating my arguments. Uh, The third party intervention uh, with regard to Israel-China relations have become very prominent, particularly in the last couple of years. So uh, clubbing this question together, may I request uh, Professor Guy Burton to raise your, uh, your, your queries to Professor Friedman.
6: Well, thank you very much. And thank you, Professor Friedman, for the presentation. And I appreciate uh, you, um, being, being allowed to ask this. Now, it's a very quick question, which is that the la- we've seen over the last year or so, uh, the United States becoming much more uh, pressing on its allies and partners in the region. Israel is obviously the most uh, notable example, but there's also been um, some, some persuasion of the Egyptians um, to not have the Chinese engage in, in their, sorry, engage in, in their 5G network. Um, possibly even extending to the Gulf at some point. Now, in your presentation, you said that the Middle East is not going to be a priority for for, for Biden, but, you know, are they really willing to cede the grounds to potentially China here? So how do they sort of maintain, you know, uh, sort of, and I I also think on the other side, there is a Chinese perspective, which sort of, I think people like Fan Hongda, who have suggested that they don't want to play this game, that China should try and avoid, Um, sort of getting sucked into the Middle East, the theater of competition. So I wonder whether we might see a different change or we see just continuity.
1: Okay. Um, Thank you very much, Guy. Again, good questions on China. You know, you're dealing with two things when you're dealing with China. First of all, you're dealing with resources. Uh, The Chinese import still lots of oil from Iran, from Saudi Arabia, And they're very worried about the lines of communication through the Indian Ocean, through the Straits of Malacca, etc. And they're worried about in case of war, the U.S. could interdict these lines of communication. That's why they've been busy building pipelines through Central Asia uh, to get that oil and natural gas. So this is this is number one. The question is, in the case of China, its dealings with Israel, you know, these go back a ways. Uh, At one point in 2000, uh, there was a combined Russian-Israeli AWACS, Airborne Warning and Control System plane, that was going to be sold to China, but the U.S. nixed that and said no. Right now, the issue is Haifa port. The uh, Chinese have been given the right to develop Haifa port. The problem there is Haifa port is basically... Uh, a home port for the American Sixth Fleet. And, uh, you know, the Australians have the same problem. They gave the Chinese the right to develop Darwin up North. And this is a place where American Marines rotate in and out and, uh, as a base also for the U S. So at, at one point the push is going to come to shove and the, uh, Israelis are going to be told by the US, if you, want to make, if you want to continue to get a lot of military aid from us, it's $3.8 billion a year now. Uh, you've got to sever your ties with the Chinese, at least in, in dealing with Haifa. And I think that's uh, the Israelis are pushing back on that. But that may be an issue of friction. Was it One of the few areas of friction under the Trump administration And I think it may grow into a bigger bit of frustration now. Now, that having been said, uh, there's been a lot of talk about this new deal between Iran and China, uh, a 25-year deal. Um, The question is that since October, the Iranians are now free to buy weapons anywhere they want to uh, because the UN embargo has been lifted. Uh, Will the Russians sell the weapons? Will the Chinese sell the weapons? Anybody who does sell the weapons, any companies involved, will immediately become sanctioned by the United States. So they've been holding off a little bit on this. Um, If I'm sitting and I'm advising China, and I'm advising the government of China, and I'm facing a real and growing clash between the Saudis on the one hand and the Iranians on the other, does not pay to come down on one side or the other you want to guarantee your supply of oil from both. So I think they're going to still try to maintain their neutrality on the one hand, while pushing their belt and road policy, uh, you know, ports all through the Indian Ocean, uh, which obviously challenges India uh, to get their exports through, etc. So I don't see that the Chinese other than economically uh, becoming yet a a big political force in the Middle East, Um, certainly not a dominant political force, at least in the near future. Um, We'll see. I mean, Xi Xi Jinping has lots of ambition, uh, but the Middle East is a very complex place. And the Uyghur issue may loom large again, especially because the Turks are pushing it now. Um, So we will see. As of now, I don't see the U.S. ceding the the Middle East to, uh, to China again. Just because the Middle East may not be as high a priority for mm. the Biden administration as perhaps it was under previous administrations, does not mean that the U.S. is giving up on the Middle East. I think, let me make that point very clear.
0: Thank you, sir. Uh, So we have another question from a very young researcher here, Uh, Pratmesh. Pratmesh, if if you would like to unmute yourself and ask Professor your question. Uh, Thank you, sir. Uh, Sir, my question is, will President Biden recognize Jerusalem to be the only capital of Israel, whole of Jerusalem, or will he push for a settlement on East Jerusalem? Thank you.
1: Um, Well, tactically... Uh, By not moving the embassy back uh, to Tel Aviv, he's essentially saying that Jerusalem is the capital of of uh, of Israel. However, even Trump, remember, when he moved, the capital said this does not in any way say our position on the final status of Jerusalem. So I think that's still going to be up in the air. And it uh, depends on, again, those three things that I mentioned. Palestinian leaders strong enough who wants peace, Israeli leaders strong enough who wants peace, and an American president who's strong enough and is able to push through and make the peace possible. And you don't have those now. All you can do is the little things.
0: Thank you, sir. Uh, do we have any other queries uh, uh, from the audience? Uh, I think we are a lot. We have a lot of interests uh, with the discussion going on right now. Uh, if there is anybody who would like to raise any question, all right, Professor, uh, I would say that that uh, we have had a very very interesting session today. Uh, I think it's very rare that we cover uh, almost all the countries ranging from China to you know Russia to Syria to Yemen under one uh, discussion. Uh, and I think we, all of us, would agree that we have had a very engaging session. Uh, encapsulating a a whole gamut of the issues with regard to the Middle East and when it comes to the US also. So thank you, sir, for taking out your time and being with us today. And we look forward to having you more again. And with these few words, uh, I would hand over to Professor Kumar Swami. Thank you.